Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the Hard Way to Enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at NortonSimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. Elias Studios. I love this one. I love big libraries, I cannot lie. <laughs> one of my favorite places in the world always amazed by the abundance of riches found within these walls. There's one scrawled by a child that said, I have a dream that I will become a famous author, and when I do, I will help those in need. Then there's, this library provided solace and a safe haven during some hard times. Thank you, LAPL. This is How to LA. I'm Brian De Los Santos. And today, we're learning about the history of the Los Angeles Public Library. We're doing it by exploring the central library in downtown LA, the crown jewel of the city's sprawling public library system with 72 branches from Coenga to Chinatown to Fairfax. And those quotes you just heard? They're from a guest book in the Getty Gallery at the Central Library. All month, we've been checking out some of the most iconic spots in LA that are hitting the century mark this year in honor of our first birthday as a podcast. This place, however, is a little bit different. It's not quite 100, it's 97, but it's such a cool building, we had to include it. Plus, we should mention, the LA Public Library as a whole turned 150 this past year. The library itself opened to the public in January of 1873. Today, the LA Public Library, across all its locations, has more than 6 million volumes and is one of the largest library systems in the country. As a librarian, it's wonderful because it's like we're here to help people that come in and pursue their own path. It all began downtown, near Temple and Main, with just two reading rooms, newspapers, and 750 volumes, plus a small room for games of checkers and chess. Back then, it was run by the Los Angeles Library Association. For many of us who grew up in the LA Unified School District, the LA Public Library was definitely one of our first field trips, no matter where you lived in LA. Maybe it was a big central library or a smaller local branch somewhere. But if you never checked out your local library, go do it. It's always nostalgic, and honestly, I just love the smell of books in there. We're like torchbearers, you know, for the knowledge that lies within here. The Central Library as we know it today officially opened in 1926, and it is huge. The 5th Street location is 538,000 square feet of space on eight floors, nearly 89 miles of shelves, and seating for more than 1,400 people. If you've never been, you gotta go. The building is gorgeous and officially joined the National Register of Historic Places back in 1970. But let's begin our tour with How to LA producer Megan Botel. At the start of the summer, she went to the Central Library downtown to learn more about it and the LA public library system. 
This is what's posted. Yeah. <laughs> Your menu says. Right now we're in the Getty Gallery at the Central Library in downtown Los Angeles. This is James Sherman. Here we have an exhibition celebrating the 150 uh, years of the Los Angeles Public Library. He's a librarian in the literature and fiction department at the Central Library. Last December, he helped curate an exhibit celebrating the 150th anniversary, which details the entire history of the LA library system. I, along with Christina Rice, who's the senior librarian in the photo department, we curated this together. When the library started in 1872, you know, only 6,000 people in Southern California, and still it was the largest city or metropolitan area, if you can call it that, in Southern California. San Francisco by far was the center of activity in the state. They decided they wanted a library. What they were primarily interested in were getting periodicals and magazines from the East Coast. So it was almost like the internet stations today. They wanted to keep up with the current information and they pooled their resource, the idea of having, there would be books of course, but there would also be the most current information possible, which in 1872 probably was about a week old or older. What really astonishes me is how quickly LA grew. It just was by leaps and bounds so that by the time this building that we're in, Central Library, was built, it was between a half million and a million people. Like at the turn of the century, it was 100,000 people and it only had 6,000 people three decades earlier. And of course, the library being founded really in the earliest part of the organization of the city, it was always trying to keep up with the population. And so the idea was like other cities back east, but also, you know, like San Francisco, you would have like a central library to have a central gathering place for people. First, it was just in, depending on the source, either two or four rooms in the Downey block, which is pictured here. This exhibit includes a ton of historical documents that have been preserved for the last 150 years by the library. It would have been around 1880, 1881 actually. Mary Foy was a librarian of the time, and it was her paycheck for $72. This is the bookkeeping, and then you can see the rent as well. The rent is rent going to Downey, and it's $40. That's when they were in the two rooms. And it is wild to see how much Los Angeles has grown and changed from the perspective of the library system. It's interesting, of course, when I point out that Mary Foy was one of our favorite early librarians. Uh, she was getting paid a lot less than her mm -hmm. male predecessors. No surprises there, I suppose. Why is she one of your favorite oh, librarians? Oh, she started when she was 18 and she was like a recent graduate of Los Angeles High School. As opposed to the, the prior people, it just kind of was a job, and some people after her, it was a patronage job. You know, there was just like they, somebody needed a job, so they put them in with her. She took it seriously. She went up north to like Oakland and San Francisco and South. Things were done and adopted it. She was the first person to adopt a card catalog, which is, of course, dear to librarians' hearts. And But she also was very organized and, and really did a great job, even though... You know, she was a very, very young woman at the time. She went on to be a suffragist with also another favorite librarian, Tessa Kelso. They were, you know, very strongly for women's rights. And she's just, uh, she's an incredibly colorful character. There's a great out in the rotunda. We'll go past a, uh, a plaque to her. People are wearing very heavy coats for and, L.A. And, of course, hats, too. That's love interesting. All the hats. Yeah, yeah. And the way people dressed, of course, also at that time, it was ridiculously long before the internet. A lot of business people, lawyers, and people would come to do research at the library as well because the kind of information that was available to them, they would have information here to help in their whatever their profession was. Originally, it was a for pay. 
and people would be members. It wasn't a free library. You'd have a membership, a yearly membership. Originally, it was only for men, although Mrs. Downey, the uh, wife, had special privileges. But um, over time, they, it became a free library. Originally, everything was kept behind. The, the stacks where the books are, like nowadays, you can just walk in and take a book. In the old days, you'd have to ask to send somebody to get a book, and the books were not open stacks. But that changed also in the 1880s, that they, op they opened up the stacks. And every time they made things easier, more and more people would come, and then they would have this pressure of, we need a bigger place. The need for more space paved the way for what we now call the branch system. It started with just a few locations, San Pedro, Hollywood, and Lincoln Heights. The public library kind of had a situation where they would, where localities would audition. So if there was like a neighborhood, they're like, well, we want a, a library. The library administrators would say, well, why don't you, you can volunteer to run a library. We'll provide you books, but you have to provide volunteers. And if it becomes a going concern, we'll adopt it. And maybe we'll have staff there. When the city was growing, it annexed a number of different neighborhoods. San Pedro one was the earliest. So... You know, getting San Pedro into the city was really important because San Pedro has the port area. When they annexed it, they got one of the early Carnegie libraries. And of course, Andrew Carnegie, he was a, the steel magnate from Scotland who basically taught himself everything in a library in Scotland. Felt like libraries were super important to his own education. And so he supported libraries built throughout the United States. The small town I grew up in had a tiny little Carnegie library. So basically, San Pedro already had one. When we annexed it, it became kind of the first permanent building. The Hollywood was the same way, annexed in 1912. In 1913, we started to build our own. We got six. The Vermont Square branch is the first branch that was owned by the library with its own collection. And then there were others built after that. The second one was the very beautiful Lincoln Heights branch. That's still there today and in use. Vermont Square is still in use. And then, of course, the Coenga branch is still in use today. Plans for the Central Library downtown started in 1921 and it opened to the public in 1926. The Central Library is now split into two buildings, informally known as the Old Building and the New Building. The quote-unquote old building we're in now is a major architectural landmark in LA. It was designed by New York architect Betram Goodhue. He'd had a, came kind of to local attention when he built a lot of the San Diego exposition buildings, which were Spanish style and architecture, Spanish, Spanish and mission style. But he kind of surprised everybody by having a vernacular of his own. The Central Library was kind of the result of his ideas of mixing some older styles, but basically a kind of a fresh style looked like, as Ray Bradbury said once about it, it looks like the future. A big part of what he did is integrate art and ideas into the actual building of the library. A lot of the themes that are in the library are light, illumination, so that knowledge is that source, is the light that lights a path through darkness, that lights the path through you know, ignorance and so on. It's interesting, there's also on the very top of the library, there are six figures and they're all representative of people that uh, they're all considered light bringers in some way or another. My favorite is Homer and Virgil who both were blind, but they also had the kind of uh, the illumination of knowledge within, right? Light is as the metaphor there. And it's really a beautiful way that, that it's integrated into the, into the library.
We'll be back to explore more of the impressive features of Central Library after a quick break. Support for LAS comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. When Jelly Will Morton's soul is forced to face the music, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz is left at the ultimate crossroads. This lively musical follows the journey from the back alleys of New Orleans to the sparkling stages of New York, featuring a sizzling bandstand, electrifying tap dancing, and soulful tunes. On stage for four weeks only, Jelly's Last Jam. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets available now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Hey y'all, this is How to LA. I'm Ryan Little Santos, and today we're exploring the Central Library in downtown. You're listening to How to LA producer Megan Botel. I mean, that's like walking into an old cathedral or yeah, something. Yeah, that's exactly the feeling they were trying to give. Now, we're heading into this enormous room that's called the Rotunda. Voices echo as you walk through it. The ceilings are seemingly miles high. It was all part of the 1926 opening. So originally when the library opened in 1926, this was kind of the main nexus of activity. One of these desks was a reference desk, a general reference information desk, and then one of these was the checkout desk. And on the sides there were the old card catalogs here. There's a huge sprawling mural painted in oils along the walls by the renowned illustrator Dean Cornwell. It depicts scenes of California's history, at least as interpreted by the artist, split into four panels. They're called The Era of Discovery, The Building of the Missions, Founding of the Pueblo of Los Angeles, and The Americanization of California. You can see the different eras. So you're starting with like, you know, the Liberty Bell, the Pioneer, and the Buffalo. But then as you go back, you can see it goes into European cultures. There's, you know, Notre Dame Cathedral, but there's also Shiva from the Hindu cosmology. And then there's Romulus and Remus in Rome, and you can see the Greeks, and you can see the Egyptians. And then beyond that, the three pyramids of Cheops there, there's nothing. So it's like this kind of very powerful idea of the, the, the early beginnings of knowledge. The architect, Goodhue, was really interested in having art as a fundamental part of the library design. So we have these panels that were done by Dean Cornwell, who's a really important illustrator in American history. His idea of history, not so accurate. <laughs> you can see around here, like, supposedly a local Native American is represented by a headdress, obviously not, you know, anything like the um, Indians of present-day California. And this is the zodiac globe. You can see all the zodiac signs going around the earth. There's 48 light bulbs to represent the 48 states that were, you know, in the United States at the time we opened. And then, of course, the globe. Uh, the light of learning, you can peek, if we peek through here, there's a, it's right on the top. It's directly above. The, the original one is directly above here, but also there's an example of it there. 
1986, a fire that was said to be arson destroyed much of the library, including this room. You might remember that the author, Susan Orlean, wrote about it in her kind of perfectly titled book, The Library Book. Then, an earthquake the next year caused even more damage. The library closed for several years at that time for restoration. Originally, the plan was to demolish the building and start new. But a group of conservationists around LA rallied to save the building, and it reopened in 1993. The movement to save Central Library ended up being one of the first conservation movements in Los Angeles. So it was this building that reminded people of, that there is a history in Los Angeles, that there are things worth saving. And the LA Conservancy actually was founded basically by the people that saved this library. When did everything become digitized? Actually, it began in during the period that the library was wandering around between the time that it was closed from the fire. Now, the library's always been kind of a, an innovator in, in like computer technology and so on, but the digitization really, that's when it started in the 90s. At the same time they were moving books around, they were also barcoding them. So the barcodes that are for books that don't get checked out or this original date is on them, October 1993. We're walking into the children's department. This is also one of the most original rooms. So this is the historical mural of the Portola exhibition. Wow. When was that painted? This area used to be considered the main reading room. A lot of people like that come from other library systems back east talk about where's the big reading room? Where is, is there a big reading room like there is in the Library of Congress, the New York Public Library? This was the closest thing we had to it. This is where people would check out books. This is where people would get information about where, where, where they could go to pick up their books. Through there is the picture book room that used to be the social sciences department. Through there, those double doors of the workroom, but those used to be the literature department. It's just such a beautiful room with these old fixtures and so on. And it's, it's, a, it's a really peaceful place for kids. And, and our librarians here are some of the best. If you see pictures of the old library, you can see just tables lined up and people are doing work. And in fact, we have some pictures in the exhibition of there were so few places to put books that some of the, some of the books were just stored on some of the tables. It was kind of nuts. But in this room, they specialized kind of what the Portola represents, California history, maps, and genealogy. So James mentioned that the LA Library has always been an innovator when it comes to technology. So now we're headed to the section that opened in 2019 with all sorts of state-of-the-art equipment that's free for any library cardholder. So this is the Octavia. I can't talk. <laughs> if you didn't hear that, we're in the Octavia lab. Are those the 3D printers? Whoa, so there's 3D I've never printers seen over one there. before. All this stuff is available, you know, for people to use. This is a... Well, it's obviously a 3D model, but it was created using AI. Um, so, yeah, that's what I remember. To use any of this equipment, you first have to become a member of the lab. It requires an ID and a library card in good standing, but it's completely free. Then you can call the lab to make a reservation for specific equipment or just show up during open hours, which is every afternoon but Sunday. We'll put details in the show notes. That's a laser cutter. It's cutting, like, I believe that's what that is. So he's got that design there and he's cutting it on there. I love that smell. <laughs> right? I'm not, I don't know if I'm supposed to love it. But. The desk just opened 
in the last month that we added an additional uh, recording studio. And there's the swing oh. Okay, that's just a small taste of some of the features and history from inside the building. Now we're headed to the outside of the building, which is itself a work of art. You can kind of get that still feeling of a nave, like in a cathedral here, with all the light. Races of men increase and races fade, and in brief space tribes fare their motor way, like runners passing on the lamp of light. This is a quote carved in stone just above the main entrance of the building. It's by the Roman philosopher and poet Lucretius. It's not the full translation, but this is part of the et quasi quasoris of Vichier Lampada Tradun is a part of that. It, I think it's the last line, like runners passing on the lamp of light. Again, it speaks to that theme of light. Architecturally, this is really considered the main entrance. So this shows like an evolutionary grip of layers, an old, you know, dinosaur bones, and then this lizard, and then this bird as it goes up. And of course, there's water. These are normally fountains. As you go up the stairs, it's this idea of evolution. But also, if you were to, we were to start all the way down there, and there's also these aspects of writing. So the older writing forms are down here. By the time we get up here, there's mathematics, there's Braille, there's Morse code, there's computer language, and then there's also from Futurism, Polsky, and Distill is also like Dadaist, like art, the kind of art language that they have represented here. This theme of the light and the light of learning, is that a general common library theme or is that unique to LAPL? Well, I mean, the way that it's described here is definitely the LAPL's you know, motto. But yeah, I think that it, the, that light and illumination, enlightenment, all that is, is you know, discussed in terms of light. So I think in, in learning and education and libraries being part of that, yeah, that's definitely a, um, a theme that you see a lot. I think we adopted it, you know, I think you took it 150% here, which is really great. Being a librarian is kind of keeping that flame alight, right? so that there's information and it's just here waiting for people to come in. It, it's not directive, it's not telling people what they should learn. It's all available for people to pursue their own interests and their own knowledge in their own way and that's what librarians do is they keep that fire going and we pass it on to anyone who asks. Like what I love about being a librarian is that you're a generalist so you learn a lot about a lot of different things so just personally I learn a lot every day. The interactions that you have helping people you know, find something that's important to them and to see their eyes light up like, wow, this is so cool. This is available to me. And the idea that it's all here for free, it's just really a magical thing to be part of. What do you think the future of libraries is? It's funny, when I, I thought I wanted to be a librarian when I was in college, but at that time the internet was just starting to come in. People were saying, well, libraries are not going to exist anymore. And they were saying kind of the same thing in the 70s. To me, the, the library will always have a future because it's people helping people. Like currently, people are worried about ChatGPT and so on. The technology and formats don't matter. It's the interaction of one person helping another or showing another person where they can help themselves, right? That interaction between two people is what's really wonderful about being in a library. And I think that's going to continue, whether it's sharing information or whether it's sharing program, or as we were seeing with the Octavia Lab, making these things accessible that would not be accessible. If 
the library will continue to offer services, information, ways for people to enlarge their own lives. I think that's what will always keep the library a special place for people. That concludes our tour of the Central Library and our exploration of the LA Public Library System. That was librarian James Sherman speaking with How To Late producer Megan Botel. If this sparked your interest, go ahead and check out the building yourself and learn about the history of our libraries here in LA. Oh, by the way, if you don't follow, you should really check out the LA Public Library on Instagram. It's really cute and fun. While you're at it, check out our feed at Elias Official. This library episode was produced by Megan Botel. Our other producers are Evan Jacoby, Monica Bushman, and Victoria Alejandro. Thanks, y'all. Hasta luego. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.